It's Thursday, October the 18th. Drugs are now legal. The fake news steps up the game and goes crazy fake news. And ISIS is invited to Canada. So that's this week. And here's the history of all that. Well, last week we did an interview instead of our history behind the news, but today we're back to our history and back to the news. But I hope you really enjoyed that interview, and I definitely am planning on doing some more podcasts like that. Uh, make sure you check out the website, laureliesiemens.com. There's so much information there for you to share. There's past podcasts, there's videos, there's blogs, and I have some special podcasts coming up soon. I'm going to tell you all about that next week. So you're not going to want to miss that. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And while you're there, if you could just hit five stars, that would be awesome. That would help a lot. So thanks. All right. This week, the media stepped over the line in their fake news. Two stories went out that were way over the line. The first one was from a speech Donald Trump gave in Ohio. So during the speech, Trump was telling a story about General Grant. Grant, in case you don't know, was a Republican who was born in Ohio, and he led the North in the Civil War and later became the President of the United States. So it makes sense that Trump would tell his story while at a Republican rally in Ohio. In telling his story, Trump talked about General Lee, a great general that looked impossible to beat. Lincoln tried general after general to try to defeat Lee. He was unstoppable. Then Lincoln found Grant. People said, don't use Grant. He's a drunk. He's no good. But Lincoln used him anyway. And he didn't look like a great general. But sometimes you need the person who can get the job done. Not the person who looks like he can get the job done. Trump was clearly showing himself as Grant. Not the drinking part, but the whole not looking the part. The crowd cheered and screamed every time he mentioned Grant. The media took that story and edited the clip to just show Trump talking about how good General Lee was and how he was undefeatable. And then the media said Trump spoke at a rally praising the Confederate leader, Robert E. Lee. NBC went so far as to completely make up a fake quote, saying Trump said Lee was incredible. He actually said Grant was incredible. It took two days for the NBC to post a correction. This is exactly how the narrative of Trump being a racist has been spread around. His words are taken out of context, and then the mainstream media that people are supposed to trust, and some people still trust, runs with the story. Even here in Canada, the media was telling the story of Trump praising Robert E. Lee. Now, this was just one of the two times this weekend that the media crossed the line. The second was in the reporting of a DNA test by Elizabeth Warren. This is going to be a history lesson of today. We have to start the story on June 22, 1949, in Oklahoma City, 
appalling hearing gave birth to her fourth child. It was her fourth child, but her first daughter. She named her Elizabeth. Donald and Pauline were middle-class family. They had four children, and Donald worked as a maintenance man. Then Donald had a heart attack. This meant he could not work. It also meant the family had massive medical bills. Pauline went to work at Sears in the catalog order department, but the children also had to find jobs. Elizabeth was 13 years old. She had to help with the bills by working in her aunt's Mexican restaurant. Elizabeth, for the most part, had a happy childhood, but not an easy childhood. Because money was tight, there was always a fear they were on the verge of losing everything. Elizabeth, however, was extremely smart and did very well in school. Her family was not a well-educated family, and Elizabeth stood out in her family. In high school, she joined the debate team, and she became the state champ. Her high school life was working at her aunt's restaurant, doing homework, the debate team, and a boy named Jim Warren. Jim was an extremely smart boy. He was a senior, and she was in her second year of high school. She ended up graduating early from high school at the age of 16. She was given a full scholarship to George Washington University because of her debating skills. She would be on the debate team in the university. Elizabeth continued to date Jim, and after two years of university, she quit school to marry Jim. The couple moved to Texas, and Jim became a mathematician for NASA. He worked in the IBM group for NASA. Elizabeth went back to school and finished at the University of Houston. She was the first to graduate from her family. Jim and Elizabeth moved to New Jersey because Jim had a project for IBM and was stationed in New Jersey. Elizabeth worked in the public schools as an aide for children with learning struggles. Jim and Elizabeth started their family and had two children, Amelia and Alex. Elizabeth wanted to go back to school and study law. Jim was fine with her going back to school, but made it clear it would be her job to figure out how to manage the home, her children, and her school. This frustrated Elizabeth, and it started a riff in the relationship. In 1976, Elizabeth became a lawyer and began to work out of her home. She mostly worked with bankruptcy cases. Then, Jim's project ended, and the couple left New Jersey and went back to Texas. Elizabeth got a job teaching at the University of Houston Law Center, a man named Bruce Mann. He was a Harvard Law professor. She was at a conference when they met. They began a friendship, and then the friendship became very flirtatious. Her relationship with Jim continued to decline, and Jim left Elizabeth, and almost right away, Elizabeth and Bruce began to date. In fact, six months after her divorce, Elizabeth married Bruce. Some people wonder if perhaps Elizabeth and Bruce had been dating while she was married to Jim. Over the next 15 years, Elizabeth continued to teach law. She moved from University of Houston to the University of Texas, to the University of Michigan, and then to the University of Pennsylvania. In 1986, Elizabeth made a change in the law school directory. This is a change that would haunt her all the way to today. She called herself a Native American. It was while she was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania that she changed her ethnicity from white to Native American. Once she made this slight change, she suddenly got a call from Harvard University. In 1995, she got the job she wanted, a law teacher 
at Harvard University. This was a huge jump from the little girl living dollar to dollar in Oklahoma. Harvard Law called Elizabeth a woman of color and boasted their campus was a diverse campus because now they had hired a woman with a minority background. This was kind of weird because Elizabeth was very white. While she was teaching, she submitted a recipe to a cookbook called Pow Wow Chow. It was an Indian cookbook. She signed her recipe, Elizabeth Warren, Cherokee. This would be the first mention of Cherokee that anyone can find for Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a very strong Democrat, and according to one of her past students, Ben Shapiro, she was well-known on campus and was extremely liberal. In November 2008, Elizabeth was contacted by the Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. Mr. Reid asked Elizabeth to chair the oversight panel. She accepted the job and started to monitor the $700 billion bank bailout. She ran the investigation and was the contact person for the reports. This made her a national face and name. In September 2010, President Barack Obama appointed Elizabeth the assistant to the president. Then, in 2014, she ran for the Senate. Once she jumped into the arena of politics, something was discovered. Elizabeth had no mention of Native heritage until right before her job at Harvard. The only thing on record was a signature on a cookbook. The Boston Herald ran a story that there was no proof she had any Cherokee heritage. Reporters began to ask her about it, and she said she had high cheekbones, like all the Indians do. This only made it worse and sounded kind of racist. Then Elizabeth told a story. Her mom and dad had fallen in love, but her grandparents, her grandparents were so racist, and they didn't want her father to marry her mother because her mother was Cherokee and Delaware. Her parents were forced to elope because her very extremely racist grandparents would never allow their son to marry an Indian. Around that same time, Elizabeth made a YouTube video from her living room. She was a regular person, lower, maybe middle class, and she found her way to the good life. And now she wanted to share with others so that they could do the same thing. The video went viral and the fake Cherokee story kind of disappeared. Around that same time, she also spoke at the Democrat National Convention, not as a keynote speaker, but it was extremely well received. People loved it. She ended up winning the election and became a senator in 2012. June of 2016, the federal election was on, and Elizabeth went on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton. The two spoke together and had a hard time getting any crowds. Trump at the time was filling stadiums. And Elizabeth had a lot to say about Trump. Then, July 25th, 2016, Elizabeth spoke again at the Democrat convention. This time, she was the keynote speaker. She was the third woman in history to do this. November the 8th, 2016, Donald Trump won the election. Elizabeth became the voice of the opposition, speaking at women's marches and every news channel she could talk to. Trump, who loves to give his opponents nicknames, called her Pocahontas. He has used this nickname for her quite often, and it's clearly gotten under her skin. At a rally, Trump said if she took a DNA test and it proved she was Native American, he would give $1 million to her favorite charity. While people in Boston knew about this claim to the whole Cherokee people thing, 
Most Americans did not. This nickname made her claim known nationally. This is a problem because people were asking Elizabeth if she had any interest in the presidency, and she does. So here's where this week's fake news comes in, and when the press crossed a line with its fake news. Elizabeth did take a DNA test, and according to the press, there was strong evidence that she is Native American or has Native American ancestry. Elizabeth made a video, probably hoping for another viral video. It probably will go viral, but not the way she hoped. In this video, she's sitting with her family. Everyone looks so very folksy. There's music underscored, and it shows her on the phone getting her results in. And the man on the phone, Carlos, he tells her there is strong evidence she has Native American ancestry. This is the exact wording then used by the media: strong evidence. Even here in Canada, Global News ran a story using those exact words: strong evidence. Elizabeth then asked for the one million dollars to go to a charity for Native American women. As Trump was getting into his helicopter to go to Florida to look at the damage from a recent storm, the media asked him, "What was he going to do now that it was proven Elizabeth did have Native American ancestry?" Well, then some people began to look at the details. So she had maybe one ancestor six to ten generations ago. That means at best one hundred and eighty years ago, or at worst three hundred years ago. I love history, so let's look at that. A hundred and eighty years ago, the Trail of Tears was happening. Andrew Jackson was president, and yes, a Democrat president was responsible for the Trail of Tears. Robert E. Lee was just married to Mary at a beautiful spot overlooking Washington D.C. She was the great granddaughter of Martha Washington. Lee was known as the best general in America and was extremely well respected. No one had any idea in just a few years he would lead the South in the Civil War, and at that time, maybe someone from a native tribe made a baby with someone in Elizabeth's family, or it could go all the way back to three hundred years ago, so seventeen eighteen. That would be fifty-eight years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So just to be clear, Elizabeth's grandparents were so racist they would not allow her mother to marry into the family because one person before the Civil War was Native American. That's pretty racist, or a ginormous lie. The Cherokee Nation put out a statement condemning her claims to be Cherokee and asking her to please stop. They have no record of her family. The day only got worse. Twitter began to mock her, and anyone who didn't know the story of her fake heritage suddenly all knew and were laughing at her. What shocked people is that she thought this was a good thing, and that she knew the media would run her story, and that she thought Americans were stupid enough to believe the story. Even the Democrats were angry that she was running this just a few weeks before the election. It makes all Democrats look stupid. But the media is still covering for her. Other than Fox News, they won't run a story showing how bad and stupid this is. But the media is saying anyone who calls her Pocahontas, they're the racist ones. It's Trump that's racist using the name Pocahontas. So just to catch you up on the rules in this politically correct game, 
dressing up for Halloween as a Native American bad. That's cultural appropriation. Pretending to be a Native American so you can get a job, totally fine. Calling out people who wear Halloween costumes of Native Americans, good. Very woke of you. Calling out people for faking Native American ancestry, bad. You're racist. This game has very confusing rules. All right, what does this mean as a Christian? Well, a couple of things. One, be proud of who you are and where you came from. If you're black, be proud of that. If you're Asian, be proud of that. If you're Native American, be proud of that. And if you're white, you can be proud of that. God made you and you are his creation. The idea that if you're white, you need to be ashamed is completely unbiblical. You are not bad just because you are white. That is racist. That's as racist as saying someone is bad because they're black. If you're not white and you think it's okay to say racist things against white people, it's not. Racism is ignorant and wrong regardless of what race it's directed at. All right, two, don't lie. Elizabeth is clearly an extremely smart person. She overcame a lot of challenges. She clearly worked very hard to get where she is. I don't agree with her on really anything. And I think how her marriage ended and her second marriage started is pretty wrong. But she still worked hard to get where she is. And she shouldn't have to pretend to be someone she isn't. Lying will always catch up with you. And that brings me to three. Remember, sin will always catch up to you. You got away with it for a while, but it's going to catch up to you. So that's some American news. And here in Canada, we have huge news this week because as of yesterday, pot is legal. What does that mean for Christians? This is a topic I've actually changed my mind on over the last few years. When I was in high school, we had an assembly where the local candidates for the federal election had a chance to talk to our senior students. It was the first year that I voted. I was assuming I would vote conservative because that's how my family always voted. However, during the assembly, the conservative candidate said that he was for the legalization of marijuana. The liberal candidate said that they were against it. And this surprised me because I thought every rational person would be against legalization of marijuana. I had eyes and I could see the students in my classes that did drugs were called potheads for a reason. They were going nowhere. Since the other two candidates were the NDP party and the communist party, I picked the liberals. And yes, we had an actual candidate from the communist party at my high school assembly. As a side note, when he was asked, what would you do if you won, but society didn't want to give up everything they owned, his answer was, it'll probably involve a lot of blood. Communism usually comes into power with a lot of bloodshed. So, okay, I crossed him off my list. So, yes, that year I voted for the first time and Jean Chrétien won keeping a majority government. It was that one question on drugs that made me vote liberal. That was the only time I voted liberal, and I'm now literally a card-carrying member of the Conservative Party. And the liberals, who are currently in power here in Canada, have just legalized marijuana. Over the years, my views on marijuana have changed. My views on many laws actually have changed. In high school, I was a vegetarian environmentalist who was against guns. Now I'm a bacon-eating freedom lover. If you've never changed your mind on an issue, you're probably not really listening to what other people have to say. But I'll say the marijuana argument was probably one of the harder things for me to listen to with an open mind. 
But after listening to all the arguments, here's what I think. It actually should be legal. But making it legal is going to make parenting a lot harder, and Christians should not do drugs. So let me break this down to you. Politically, my political belief is this. We should have as few laws as possible. The government should stay out of my business. So when I hear the libertarian argument for marijuana being legal, I kind of have to agree. Is it really necessary to put people in prison for smoking pot? Is putting people in prison for doing drugs really actually helpful for society? I mean, think about it. Should we take a person who's caught smoking a joint and then put them in a cage? I mean, does that really help anyone? So politically, I kind of get why it's legal. But then you have to ask yourself, is it actually legal? Last week, we had eight cannabis laws. And this week, we have 45. That's what happens when the government steps in. Last week, if you gave a joint to an underage person, you could go to jail for seven years. And this week, if you give a joint to an underage person, you go to jail for 14 years. So you might be wondering, but wait, what exactly did we make legal then? Well, we made it legal for the government to sell drugs. And we found a way to tax potheads. And the government is actually kind of a tough drug dealer. Try to take away its market, you're going to prison. So while I do believe politically it was the right move to legalize pot, I'm not actually sure we did legalize it. And then it comes to parenting. I have four teenage girls. And I really don't want drugs to become as normal as drinking. I mean, it's hard enough for me to keep them away from trying alcohol. Now I have to keep them away from pot. And I know, I know, pot was around last week when it was illegal. I'm not an idiot. However, there was clearly more alcohol visible than pot use. And I don't want my kids to be at a friend's house and the parents are just in the kitchen smoking pot and that's just like a casual thing. I already have that problem with alcohol. I also have concerns because my kids are going to start driving. In fact, one of my kids is going to be driving in just a few months. Last weekend, a drunk driver went through a stop sign near our house and killed two people. My youngest daughter had actually just driven through that intersection a few minutes earlier. Drunk driving is terrifying, but now we're going to add the problem of driving high, and we don't actually know how much marijuana you're going to be allowed to have in your system when you're driving. There's still no way to do test it either. And look, as a mom, I just want my kids safe. Then there's the whole eating pot thing. I mean, the whole baking pot into food and how much is legal and how much is actually lethal. Look, let's just say as a mom, I have a lot of questions. So basically, parenting's about to get harder. And then there's as a Christian. I don't think Christians should do drugs. I'm actually going to go a step further. and I don't actually think Christians should be drinking alcohol either. And I know what people say. God gives us freedom as long as we're not hurting anyone. But Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in humility and love. My own family has been impacted by alcohol. My father had an upbringing that you could make a movie out of. He faced incredible difficulties because his father and older brothers were heavy drinkers. I've worked with at-risk kids in low-income housing, and both alcohol and drug use are a huge problem in those areas of town, and I've seen the impact on those families. And I'm an adoptive parent, and I've gotten to know a lot of foster and adoptive parents, and drug and alcohol abuse is one of the main reasons a lot of biological parents no longer have custody of their children. As I said earlier, drunk driving has ended a lot of lives and destroyed a lot of families, so I really hate it when I hear Christians just joke about alcohol use, especially from the pulpit. This has no place in our churches. It's not funny. And the pews have people who've been devastated by its control. And it doesn't make you a cooler Christian. 
It's a messy topic and it needs to be handled with love and sensitivity. A Christian can drink alcohol as long as they don't have a drinking problem. I hear that all the time. Well, guess when you find out if you have a drinking problem, usually after the first drink. This will be the same thing with drug use. Those who have an addictive personality will have problems with both alcohol and drug use. And then, of course, I hear a Christian can drink as long as they don't get drunk. Well, let's be honest. The idea of social drinking is really just a fancy way of saying, I want to look cool and make sure I fit in. As a non-drinker, I can say no one cares if you say, thank you, but I don't drink. In fact, if I'm at a party with alcohol and people are excited because that means they don't have to share the bottle of wine with me. And if we have a free ticket to the bar, they're pretty happy to take my ticket. And actually, the only time I have a negative reaction when I say I'm a non-drinker is when I'm with Christians who do drink. Basically, I think the same argument is going to be made about Christians and drug. Take your favorite article or blog on alcohol use and put the word pot when you see alcohol and there you go. It's fantastic. One more thing to divide the church over. So what am I going to do as a Christian, as a conservative, and as a Canadian parent? I'm going to not do drugs. And I'm going to tell my kids to not do drugs. And I'm going to be annoyed the government has basically become the national drug dealer. All right. I saved the most disturbing news for the end. The following information comes from a global reporter named Stuart Bell. In 1998, a family moved to Canada from Pakistan. They moved to Mississauga. They had an eight-year-old boy named Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali grew up in Canada. He played basketball. He even went to a Catholic high school. In 2008, he went to Ryerson University. But then Muhammad met a man named Andre. He was a Muslim from Toronto. Andre and Muhammad became friends. The friendship changed Muhammad and he started skipping classes and ended up leaving Ryerson. Then in 2012, Andre went to Syria to fight with ISIS. A year later, Mohammed heard the news that his friend Andre had been killed. Mohammed moved to northern Alberta and worked to raise money for a plane ticket so he could go to Turkey. He would go and fight with ISIS, just like his friend Andre. He would do what Andre had wanted to do. He began talking to a recruiter from Sweden, an English-speaking Muslim who was recruiting people online to come and fight for ISIS. Muhammad's father tried to convince him not to go, but once he had the money, Muhammad Ali got in a plane in Toronto and flew from the Pearson Airport to Turkey. It was April 2014, one year after Andre's death. While it's true his family tried to stop him, they did not contact the police or let the airport security know why he was on the plane. To me, that's an issue. He could have been stopped, and they didn't try very hard. If my child told me they were going to fly to the Middle East and work with ISIS, I would make sure that that didn't happen, even if that meant ending up in prison. Anything would be better than being a member of ISIS. So Muhammad Ali arrived, and he was met with the Swedish recruiter. He was brought to an ISIS camp where he was questioned and then sent to a training camp. There were a lot of fighters there who were from English-speaking countries. Lots of people there spoke English. So there was really no problem for Muhammad. This, of course, is extremely concerning. The fact that so many knew English and were educated people and were from English-speaking countries should concern us. Where exactly were those fighters from? And more importantly, where are those fighters today? Two months later, in June of 2014, Abu Baghdadi declared himself the head of the Islamic State. 
Muhammad Ali was at the time working for the oil and gas ministry for ISIS. He found this job mostly boring, so he spent most of his time online. His online name was Abu Turabo al Kandadi. In his posts, he said he was no longer a Canadian. Maybe we should hold him up to that. He posted videos of executions. He posted videos of soccer games played with the severed heads of their prisoners. Then, on September the 19th of that year, ISIS released a horrifying video. Intelligence agencies around the world watched it. Syrians were forced to dig their graves. Then they were lined up and killed. The video was horrifying. Intelligent agencies wondered about the Englishman who was talking in the video. Was that a Canadian accent that they heard? Yes, it was a Canadian accent from a man who had grown up in Mississauga, Ontario. Then Muhammad Ali decided he would like to be married. Lucky for him, there was a camp full of women for the fighters. These camps had women they could rape or women they could marry. Muhammad was paired with Raida Jabbar. They met and spoke for about 30 minutes, and then Muhammad agreed to marry her. So they were married. Rita is from BC. She also left Canada to join ISIS. She had been held in this area until she would be ready to be married off. So Muhammad and Rita were married and had two children. Then Muhammad was sent from the gas and oil to the field as a sniper. He worked as a sniper for the rest of the time he was there. He was personally responsible for the deaths of many people. But Muhammad had another job. He was a trainer. He trained people who were then sent to Europe as refugees. They were sent with the mission to kill. We've watched these attacks on our TV screen over the last few years. ISIS claimed responsibility. Mohammed was the trainer. Then in 2016, Trump won the election. The American presence in the Middle East changed things. ISIS was starting to lose its battle. Mohammed noticed something. ISIS was sending its foreign fighters to the front line. They were using them as shields. Their lives meant absolutely nothing. Also, ISIS began to fear that the foreign fighters might actually be spies. So they began to torture them and kill them. Mohammed realized him and his family were probably going to die. Mohammed and Rita decided they wanted to go back to Canada. Things were going downhill quickly for ISIS. Rita had family in Dubai, and they agreed to help them. They just needed to get to Turkey. They hid in a secret compartment of a transport truck and left the ISIS camp. They were, however, found and captured before the Turkey border. They were put into a Kurdish prison. Suddenly, Mohammed and Rita wanted to be Canadian again. They told the Kurds they're Canadian, and that information stopped the beatings, and they were suddenly treated well with no torture. Rita and the kids were moved to a women's prison. Mohammed was put into the men's prison. They divided the families. He was soon visited by British troops who came to question him. Then the Americans came. He told them everything he knew. Then a reporter for Global News came. His name, Stuart Bell. Mohammed said he's not radical anymore. He just wants to go home. He said he's tired of fighting. Here's the question that wasn't asked. If America wasn't destroying ISIS, if ISIS was still winning like they were when Obama was in charge, 
then would he be tired? Is he maybe done with ISIS because they're losers? When the reporter asks if he is dangerous, he says, I don't want to hurt Canada. If I wanted to blow something up in Canada, I would have done it before I came here. That's not really a great answer. It doesn't make me feel good. Actually, rather terrifying answer. According to the Kurds, Mohammed is not alone. They have many like him, dozens. And those are the ones that they have captured. How many more got to Turkey without being captured? How many more are already here? We know that there's some. A reporter in the States has done interviews with them. There have been no arrests. They're living here in Canada in complete freedom. Then there's the matter of Jihad Jack, a similar story, except Jack is from England. And the British are refusing to let him come back. But it appears that Canada is actively trying to get Jack to come to Canada. I mean, Canada has reached out to Jack. In question period, Trudeau was asked about this and he refused to answer. He just said, we always fight extremists. But there has been nothing from our prime minister about all the ISIS fighters that have already returned or the ones being held by the Kurds who want to return. Meanwhile, Trudeau was trying to pass a law to end Islamophobia. Do you know what will cause Islamophobia? The fact that we don't know what Muslims are just regular Canadian citizens who happen to be a different religion than us and what Muslims were snipers in Syria for ISIS and played soccer with severed heads. We won't know which ones narrated ISIS execution videos. If we don't know what ones are the crazy ones, we're just going to assume all of them are because that's how the brain works. It's not a phobia if it's real. If Trudeau... If Trudeau wants to stop Islamophobia, he has to find every single one of the ISIS fighters that are in Canada. He needs to publicly try them and then lock them up for life. His refusal to do this has caused a huge problem. All right, what do we do with this problem as a Christians? Well, personally, I want to protect my family. And that means I'm going to do what I need to do to make sure that they are safe. Just a few years ago, I said we should be grateful that there's so many people from the Middle East moving to Canada. We can't go there to be missionaries to share the good news of Jesus with them, but they're here so we can share the good news of Jesus with them here. And I tried. I ran homework clubs that were mostly Muslim students, soccer camps that were mostly Muslim students. I made food for the families. I learned how to cook food that they were allowed to eat. I took classes on how to reach into the communities without offending them. But as a whole, the church, we really didn't go out and reach into the Muslim communities. What I found is that many Christian organizations have done good things for the Muslim communities, but have not actually talked to them about Jesus because there's the fear of being offensive to them. And the fear of being offensive has silenced us. The truth is, Islam is a horrible religion. It enslaves people, literally, around the world. Men and women and little girls are held as slaves by Muslims. But it enslaves them doctrinally with the fear of Allah. There's no love. There's no love for him. There's no teaching that he loves them. It's all about fear. As a Christian, we need to love the Muslim community. Loving means telling them that there is a God that loves them. One true God, only one God. He created the world. Then sin entered the world and sin separated us from God. So God himself came to earth as Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus did not sin. And a sinless Jesus on the cross taking our punishment because he loves us. He did not stay dead. He came back to life. He's powerful, more powerful than death. 
He didn't call us to kill for him. He calls us to love for him, to love others, to spread to spread his love around the world. Jesus is peace. That is true peace. When we hear stories like Jihad Jack and Muhammad Ali, we have to remember that no one, no one is so far gone they are out of the reach of God's love. While I believe these men must be punished for what they have done, we have to also remember that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the blame for every sin, for the lies, for the unkind words, for the sniper, for the executioner, even his own executioner. That day on the cross, Jesus wanted us to know his forgiveness was for everyone. So right there on the cross while he was dying, he forgave the murderer on the cross beside him. He forgave the executioners standing by his cross. And if you have never felt that forgiveness, today call out to him. Call out to Jesus. Tell him you're sorry for the sin that nailed him to that cross and ask his forgiveness. Ask Jesus, the creator of the world, God himself to save you. And he will. I'm Lorelei Siemens. See you next week.